Well, I'd like you to come with me in your mind to high school. And imagine with me that, let's say you're in grade 11, and it's physics class, and you are scared spitless. Because the teacher is going around the classroom like they often do, asking questions and calling on students to answer in front of everyone. And either you haven't done your homework or you haven't got a clue what the answer might be. What do you do? Well, if it was me or maybe more accurately when it was me, I would frantically think of a way to avoid being asked. And so suddenly my shoes would become incredibly fascinating and I couldn't take my eyes off of them. Or another technique I would use is I would hide behind the person in front of me and make sure as the teacher moved that my head was behind the head of the person in front of me and hopefully they wouldn't see me. Or I would look intently and I would gesture demonstratively towards the person beside me that was a brainiac that had their head, hand up towards the ceiling, urging the teacher to ask them because they certainly knew the answer. Sometimes I would give the teacher an incredibly bold stare and appear very confident like I had it all together, daring them to call my bluff. And then there was my famous triple combination where I would slowly nod my head back and forth like this, mouthing the word no, and letting a tear, just one tear, come down my cheek. But of course, any good teacher is eventually going to call on you. And when they do, I might respond something like this. Who? Me? You want me to do what? And this is the question that was asked and the response given by Moses as we continue our story of his journey and the journey of the children of Israel through the desert and through the wilderness. And we've been saying, you know, in a certain sense, as we go through COVID, we're going through a journey. We're going through the desert. We're going through the wilderness. And they were presented with a series of opportunities, many of which they exercised, but a large number of which they stepped away from. And so really the question we're asking as we go through the book of Exodus together is, will we exercise the opportunities God gives to us? And so if you have your Bible or your device, turn with me to the book of Exodus chapter 3. And Exodus is the second book of the Bible. And we're continuing this series of messages called When God Leads the Way. Well, let's begin reading in verses 1 through 6. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that the bush was on fire, but it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. 
why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here am I. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the ground on which you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Has God ever asked you to be part of something that's impossible? Or at least from your perspective, seemingly daunting. But you can't escape from the fact that God has put something in your heart to do. I I use the terminology, he's given you a sustained impression. And it's an impression that, that doesn't fade over time. It becomes deeper and more intense and just keeps getting stronger. But you're thinking to yourself, there's no way I'm going to be able to do this. Or, frankly, I don't want to do this. And maybe for you, it could be any number of things. Maybe the, the sense from God that you are to share the gospel with someone that you're thinking, this is the last person in the world that would ever want to hear this message. Or this is the last person in the world that would ever receive Christ and have their life changed by Jesus. Or maybe there's been some unique opportunity presented to you during the course of COVID. Or maybe Justine or Solo or Steph or one of us will tap you on the shoulder as we're going to begin recruiting for the summer and the fall very soon. And you just know, because God's been preparing your heart, that there's something that he's put in your heart to do. Has God ever asked you to be part of something that perhaps for you is seemingly impossible or at the very least is daunting? Let me suggest to you, if he hasn't yet, that he will. So Moses was in just such a spot in life. You'll recall from last week, he has now spent 40 years in the wilderness, in the desert, as a result of his actions in chapter 2 when he tried to liberate the people of Israel on his own terms and in his his own way. And now for 40 years, he's been learning lessons that he typically would never learn in in the palace. Lessons that you only learn in the wilderness. And if COVID for you has been a season of desert or wilderness, what are we learning? We read last week that God had heard and seen and remembered the plight of the Hebrew people and the time has come to act. And Moses is out tending the flock of his father-in-law and he has a personal encounter in those first six verses with holy God. Let's begin reading again in verse seven. The Lord said to him, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, 
Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites have reached, has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, Moses. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Now normally, and usually, God's call in our life is not that dramatic. It can be, because our God is still the God of the supernatural, and sometimes the call might be very supernatural. But normally it's not that dramatic. But nonetheless, he calls each one of us. And I would ask you, have you ever come to the place in your life where you've said, God, I don't know exactly what this is going to mean, but I'm going to trust you. And so here's my life to do with as you see fit. And friends, this kind of expression, this kind of posture, this is the normal Christian life. To just sit on the sidelines and not to have that kind of approach to God this is not how God intended it for it to be at all biblically. And so God says to Moses, my plan is very simple. Moses, I want you to return to Egypt. You're going as my appointed representative, and you are going to be the vehicle through which the Israelites are delivered from slavery. Remember that at this time in history, Egypt is the most powerful nation in the world the most powerful organized army of that time. There's more than two million Israelites, between two and two and a half million Israelites. And he's saying, Moses, I want you to go and liberate this huge pool of slave labor from Pharaoh and take them to the promised land. And in verse 11, it begins with one word. It says, but... And I'm going to suggest that at this point in the story that Moses experiences what I would characterize as a major panic attack in which he is going to say to God through a series of excuses, who, me, you want me to do what? You're calling me to do what? And Moses is thinking to himself, at the precipice of verse 11 here. There is no way I can do this. And quite honestly, there's no way I want to do this. And so being a highly intelligent, well-educated individual, he begins to come up with a series of excuses, or in his mind, they're valid and legitimate reasons why he shouldn't do this or shouldn't have to do this. And I'm going to ask you just personally, does this sound familiar to you at all? And I'm going to invite you to put yourself in these excuses. Are these the kinds of excuses that we use when God taps us on the shoulder for whatever it is that he's asking us to do? And we desperately want to ignore the sustained impression that God has put into our heart to do. And I want you to watch with me as we move through this passage how God deals with and addresses the excuses slash reasons of Moses and the exact same things that he does for us when we offer up similar kinds of excuses. The first one is found in verse 11. 
But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? First excuse that we often come up with, who am I to do this? And aren't we often like this? When God asks us to do something we think is too difficult or perhaps in our mind even impossible, the first thing we do is we look in the mirror, we do a quick self-examination and we say, I haven't got what it takes. Who am I to do this? And God is going to say to Moses, you are absolutely correct. He's gonna say to Scott, you are absolutely correct, Scott, but I don't need you to do it nearly so much as I need you to be willing to do it. To have the posture of humbleness and surrender and willingness. When Moses says, who am I? He's also saying, God, I have this massive self-image problem. I feel like I'm walking around after 40 years of failure in my mind with a big L on my forehead. God responds in verse 12, and he says this. And God said, I will be with you, Moses, and this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. God's really saying to him, and he's saying to me, saying to you, get serious, Moses. You think I would dare to send you on a mission, on a project, on an assignment, in my name, on my behalf, to do a job in your own strength? If I did that, Moses, you would just fail utterly like you failed 40 years ago. No, Moses, I will be with you. And this is the first of the three Ps that we often see in Scripture. It's a repeating pattern in Scripture that I've talked to you about in the past, where we see the characters that God calls on to do things and assignments to give them. First of all, he gives them a promise or a project. And then after that, there will be a series of problems that occur. And then there'll be provision from God, the three Ps. And it's not linear like I've just described it. Sometimes they all kind of jumble together a little bit. And at times God will reiterate and will uh, go over again the promise or the project. And then more problems will come up and then there's provision and then more problems and more provision. But we see this pattern in scripture of the, what I would call the three P's. And we like to think to ourselves when God gives us the first P, the project or the promise, and God says, Scott or Moses or whatever your name is, you are made in my image. Scott, my son died very personally and intimately for you. Accordingly, you are special. You are unique, and I am on your side. I will be with you. Well, Moses does some frantic thinking, and he comes up with his next excuse in verse 13. 
And it says this, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is your name? Then what should I tell them? This is one we love to trot out at times like this. When they ask me a question, what do I do when I don't know the answer to that question? What if they ask me a question I don't know the answer to? Well, God responds in verses 14 and 15, and he says this, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. God responds by saying, Moses, you will have all of me. In Hebrew, the language this was written in, I am is written with four consonants, Y-H-W-H. It literally means to be. And so God is saying, I am is a declaration of his nature. And this is something that we cannot get our head around as human beings with our limited capacity. He is saying to Moses, I am eternal. We can't comprehend that. I am literally unchanging. He is saying nothing brought God into existence. He will always be. He is self-existent. He is uncreated. He is the eternal something that everyone in their heart knows is out there. If there was ever a time when there was nothing, there would always be nothing because nothing cannot create something. And this is, in my opinion, the most powerful argument for the existence of God, that he is the eternal something, the uncreated one. And it's an incredibly powerful word picture in which God is saying to Moses, because I am Moses, your name is I am not. I am not the center I am not in control, I am not the solution, I am not all-powerful, I am not calling the shots, I am not in charge of outcomes, I am not God. And this is the illusion, the myth, the lie that vast swaths of our world operates under. They won't say it out loud, but they are thinking, I'm God or I want to be God. And when we understand this, there is incredible freedom in this. This is a source of power. This is a source of confidence that the great I am, the uncreated one, the one that everything comes from, is with us. Moses, the living, powerful creator of all, is there, and he will be with you. And if they ask you a question you don't know the answer to, he says, I will handle it. Now, what God is not saying is to be lazy. You often hear me say this. Second Timothy talks about this, that we should be well prepared, that God expects, that God deserves our very best effort and nothing less than that. And in the rest of chapter three, God gives him instructions on how. 
this should all go. And he says, go to the elders, say this to them, tell them this is what I intend to do. They will listen to you. But as Moses, sorry, rather, as God is talking, Moses is doing something we often do, which is quite rude, actually. As God is talking, Moses is thinking about what he's going to say next. We often do this, don't we? Someone is talking, we want to make our point, and so we're thinking furiously about how we're going to respond. And so God is talking, and then Moses comes up with more excuses. And we see this in chapter 4, verse 1. Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? Really what he's asking is, God, what if they laugh at me? What if they laugh at me? Remember, Moses is a deeply hurting individual. He remembers like it was yesterday, 40 years ago, when the people rejected him. He he, he had some level of recognition that Pharaoh would reject him, that Pharaoh likely would reject him. And in some measure, he was prepared for that rejection in chapter 2 when he tries to help the Israelite being abused by the Hebrew. But not for a moment did he expect that his people, the Hebrew people, would reject him. He was thinking to himself at that time, I gave up everything for them, and they rejected me. If I go back to them, what if they reject me again? I don't know if I could stand that. And it just might be that God is calling you to do something that you attempted before and failed at. And God's response to Moses is this, you will have all my power. And then he talks about that power in verses 2 through 9. He says, you're going to have supernatural power to accomplish this task. You can take your staff and it'll turn into a snake. He demonstrates that in verses 2 through 9. He gets him to put his hand in his jacket. It comes out leprous. He puts it back inside and it's clean. And God is saying to Moses, not only will you have my authority, not only will you operate in my name, uh, and, uh, and the great I am will be by your side but you will have power to back up what I've asked you to do. Verse 10, Moses, he's got another one. He says, Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. Now, we actually know from Acts chapter 7 that Moses was a powerful speaker and a person of action. But 40 years in the desert, he's convinced himself he can't do it. And he says this, and this is something we often say, God, I do not have the ability. I'm not gifted enough to do what you're asking me to do. And God responds with incredible patience to him, as he does with us. In verse 11, he says, the Lord said to him, who gave man his mouth? Who made him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak, and I will teach you what to, stay, what to say. You know, over the years, 
I've taken many courses on speech, often called homiletics, which is just a fancy word for talking good and preaching right. And as you go into these classes, they will say things like this to you. You can exegete a passage well. In other words, you can be aware of the original languages. You can read it within context. You can read and be aware of the grammatical nuances of the passage, the historical setting, the cultural setting, the idea that you take it literally unless it's clearly not taken literally. You can exegete well, which is proper hermeneutics. You can have a solid biblical outline. You can have moving illustrations. You can have powerful word selection. You can have just the right timing. You can have fluctuation in your tone. You can have meaningful gestures. But if your tongue has not been touched by the creator... If your life has not been surrendered to him, if you have not been anointed, if you have not been filled with the spirit, absolutely nothing of eternal value will take place. You might entertain the people listening, you might have them crying, you might have them laughing, but nothing of eternal value will take place because it's the spirit of God that touches people's hearts. And unless you're surrendered to him, filled with his spirit, nothing of eternal value will take place. And this is what God is saying to Moses and saying to us. Well, finally, in desperation, he trots out the last excuse in verse 13. But Moses said, oh Lord, please send someone else to do it. And really what he's saying, there has to be someone else. I don't want to do this. There has to be someone more qualified than me. God responds. Then the Lord's anger, verse 14, burned against Moses. And he said, what about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you. And his heart will be glad when he sees you. You will speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so that you can perform miraculous signs with it. And so God gets angry with him because he says, Moses, you are my choice. However, because of your stubbornness, because there's some rebellion simmering there, I will send someone else. Now, later in the story, we're going to discover that Moses regretted this because Aaron became a sort of co-leader and Aaron caused all kinds of trouble. And friends, when we keep saying no to God, it will come back to bite us. There are consequences when we keep saying no to God. And so I ask you again, has God called you to be part of what in your estimation is impossible or a highly daunting task? And you are afraid or you are hesitant and in your mind you've developed this foolproof set of excuses slash reasons to get you off the hook. But here's the thing, if God wants you to do something, there is no excuse that he can't take care of. 
a friend of mine, not a close friend, but a friend of mine that I've known for probably 40 years. It's a guy named Craig Bundy. And he's uh, retired now. He's an American by birth. He spent a career as an international worker, a missionary in different parts of the world. Let me read you part of his story. I graduated, he said, from high school in 1965 in the United States when the war in Vietnam was ramping up. All male students in my class had to register for the military draft since I liked the water I naively decided to join the Navy rather than the Army. And so I went to the recruiting station and I passed all the exams and the physical. But because I had a good job, they suggested I wait until my draft notice arrived before entering service. I've heard, I had heard at that point that if one stayed in the military for 20 years, he could get out with a pension. And so I decided to make the Navy my career. Around that time in my life, my family had migrated, he says, to a small Christian Missionary Alliance church. We're part of a, of a family of churches, of Alliance churches all across Canada, the United States, and all around the world. And he was in a little Alliance church in the United States. The volunteer youth sponsor called me one day and suggested that I consider applying for a one-year student deferment from the draft and take a year of Bible college somewhere. He thought it would be helpful for me before I entered the military. I promised that I would pray about it, but did not expect a favorable response from the draft board. And I decided a good test of God's leading would be to tell them I would go to Bible school in Canada. Now, some people at that time tried to avoid the draft by crossing into Canada to hide from the military. So I was absolutely certain that my application would be rejected. A few weeks later, a letter arrived which genuinely shocked me. My current draft card rated me as 1A, which means I'm healthy and I'm approved for full military service. I applied for a one-year student deferment card, which should have been now re-rating me as 2S. But what arrived in the letter was a new, brand new draft card rating me as 4D. That meant the military draft board had decided I was already an ordained minister. Now, in our family of churches, it takes typically seven plus. The board had ruined my career plans. He said, well, did you pray about it? And I said, well, yes, I did. And so the youth sponsor said, well, why don't you go to Bible school for a year? And if you still want to join the Navy, you can apply for a change back to 1A status. And I'm sure they'll be glad to accommodate you. And so in the fall of 1966, I began studies at Canadian Bible College in Regina, Saskatchewan. At the end of my first year at Canadian Bible College, I received a note from the draft board telling me to go for a second year. The same thing happened a year later, telling me to go for a third year. During my third year at CBC, my priorities and life goals changed when I served as president of the Student Missions Committee. I, was apl I applied to be an approved candidate for missionary service with the CNMA and was accepted. That's a 10-year process, by the way, at that point. 
Following my decision, I never again heard from the draft board, which had classified me as an ordained minister five months before I ever started the process or ever set foot in Bible school. If God wants you to do something, there is no excuse, there is no obstacle that he cannot take care of. And it could be that he wants you to be a missionary, an international worker. Might be that be the call God is putting on your life. Or maybe he's calling you to be a pastor, a full-time vocational ministry person. Or maybe he's calling you to be a serving lay person, all valid callings in life. Maybe he's calling you to give in highly sacrificial ways to a project he's pointed you to. Maybe he's asked you to take on this assignment. Maybe he's asked you to do this or that or the other thing with that neighbor. As you are on the journey, and we are on a journey right now through the desert, a unique journey through the wilderness. What are the opportunities that God has 